Hi everyone and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week, in our 37th time discussing J.R.R. Tolkien's wonderful Middle Earth, we conclude the second chapter and then we race across Rohan in the third chapter of book three of The Lord of the Rings. The third book, the first half of the second volume. I feel like I need to recap that at the beginning of every session just because it is so confusing, but I know that you're all up to speed. I know that you all know exactly where we are as we conclude our discussion of the Riders of Rohan and move into the uruk the fearsome orcs of Saruman. Um, let me cancel that slide and talk to you here openly just for a few minutes, because before we get into today's reading, a quick announcement. Um, as I discussed in uh, Tuesday's episode of Dear Mr. Potter, a Harry Potter podcast available at pointnorthmedia.com, I'm looking into ways of using my platform here at Point North to bring and encourage more diverse and underrepresented voices into the academic and critical discourse surrounding some of our favorite stories. I am very lucky that I get to do this kind of work and that I have an audience of smart and engaged listeners and friends and, of course, patrons. I want to help to create a space for people who well, people, frankly, who aren't cisgendered, heterosexual, white dudes like me, to talk about stories, particularly about the works of Tolkien, which are so rich and complex and sometimes challenging with regard to gender and race and faith. There's a limit to how powerfully and intimately and directly I can address some of these topics from my literally privileged position. So I want to foster a more diverse kind of conversation surrounding these ideas. I am still taking ideas and suggestions and guidance for the best way to do this, but I would like to invite anyone listening right now who would like to discuss Tolkien in this way to get in touch with me by emailing pointnorthmedia at gmail.com right now, and this is just a, a starting point for the discussion. I'm thinking about a roundtable format. I'm thinking about having a few people on and kind of just talking about our responses to Tolkien and and how those responses are how those responses are unique, effectively, how those responses are are uniquely textured and and the the way in which our perspective, the way in which our personal experience of the world adjusts and colors and and alters our perception of Tolkien there. I'm also rolling out this idea, as I mentioned, to uh, to Harry Potter in the Dear Mr. Potter podcast and in the Story and Star Wars podcast, which will be returning on a more regular basis very soon. So also, please get in touch if you feel that your voice is underrepresented in the criticism and conversation surrounding your favorite story. And I guess to address a couple of emails that I've already received since announcing this plan on Tuesday, um, I'm not at all interested in a kind of tokenism. I'm not at all interested in in checking boxes off of a list. So how to put this, your voice, your voice and your perspective are necessarily unique and valuable. So please don't feel that you have to clear some hurdle of, of uniquity or distinction in order to become a part of this expanding conversation. There are so few voices in this space, you guys, that are, are that come from people of color, people from other people of other genders, people of other sexualities, people with with physical or with mental illness or disability. All voices in that space from those perspectives are innately valuable. You are valuable. So please, if you're at all interested, get in touch. PointNorthMedia at gmail.com. And if you're looking forward to that conversation, maybe send me a note and let me know about that, too. Uh, all of this is possible, of course, thanks to the extraordinarily generous support of the patrons over at patreon.com slash PointNorthMedia. Let's get into our discussion, then. Um, 
In this week's reading, as I said, we're going to cover the end of chapter two and all of chapter three, switching our focus midstream from Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas and Eomer and the writers of Rohan to Merry and Pippin, and then basically tracking the same time frame that we've already discussed. Uh, the Fellowship breaks at Parth Gallon on the 26th of February, 3019 of the Third Age. Merry and Pippin escape from the Orcs and make it into Fangorn Forest on February the 29th. So we are now effectively two months out from leaving um two months out from leaving rivendell and a week and a half out i guess from leaving uh from leaving lothlorien so that's kind of the the time frame that we're going to cover the three days that aragorn and gimli and legolas run across rohan uh, kind of matched by by mary and pippin's experience too and of course we're getting to talk about mary and pippin's excellent adventure which is the title of the slide that i used this week uh not technically, I suppose, a time travel adventure, though because we're covering the same time frame, it's almost a time travel adventure, right? Plus, I just get to use that title, which is pretty great. Let's waste not one moment and get into our um, our first slide. This is a, a recap of what we covered last week, so I'll just put this slide up. I won't unusually read this entire slide, but this is a recap of our introduction to Aomer as he demands to know, using the common speech of the West in manner and tone like to the speech of Boromir, man of Gondor, he demands to know who these strangers are, who these interlopers into the Riddermark are. Strider responds by saying, I am Strider. I come out of the North. I am hunting orcs. Well, that's not his full name is it? We'll get his full name. He introduces Legolas, he introduces Gimli, and Eomer is suspicious. Eomer offers his own introduction. Eomer, son of Eamon, of Eamond, and I am called, the, uh, excuse me, it's because it's missing an O, and I just copied this, uh, this slide from last week, so it's still missing an O, and I didn't think to correct it. Uh, I am named Eomer, son of Eamond, and I'm called the third marshal of the Riddermark, to which uh, Gimli responds, Then Eomer, son of Eamond, third marshal of Riddermark, let Gimli the dwarf Glowen's son warn you against foolish words. You speak evil of that which is fair beyond the reach of your thought, and only little wit can excuse you. And only little wit can excuse you. One of the great dwarven insults there. It's pretty great. Yes, as Angela says in the uh, in the chat here, the introductions take half an hour to get through with all of the names. Yeah, and they're only getting longer, right? As we move through the book, we're only accumulating more names. That is, I mean, pretty definitive of Tolkien, actually. And if you think this is bad, just wait till you get to the Silmarillion. And if you think this is great, just wait till you get to the Silmarillion. There's a lot of things get lots more names in the Silmarillion, is what I'm saying. Let's push into our first slide of the week, then and the actual unveiling of Aragorn's identity here. Aragorn threw back his cloak. The elven sheath glittered as he grasped it, and the bright blade of Anduril shone like a sudden flame as he swept it out. Elendil, he cried, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and am called Elessar, the Elfstone, Dunedain, the heir of Isildur Elendor, son of Gondor. Here is the sword that was broken and is forged again. Will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. Gimli and Legolas looked at their companion in amazement, for they had not seen him in this mood before. He seemed to have grown in stature while Eomer had shrunk, and in his living face they caught a brief vision of the power and majesty of the kings of stone. For a moment it seemed to the eyes of Legolas that a white flame flickered on the brows of Aragorn like a shining crown. Eomer stepped back, and, to, and a look of awe was in his face. He cast down his proud eyes. These are indeed strange days, he muttered. Dreams and legends spring to life out of the grass. Tell me, lord, he said, what brings you here? And what is the meaning of the dark words? Long has Boromir, son of Denethor, been gone seeking an answer, and the horse that we lent him came back riderless. What doom do you bring out of the north? The doom of choice, said Aragorn. You may say this to Theoden, son of Thangal. Open war lies before him, with Sauron or against him. 
None may live now as they have lived, and few shall keep what they call their own. But of these great matters we will speak later. If chance allows, I will come myself to the king. Now I am in great need, and I ask for help, or at least for tidings. You heard that we were pursuing an orc host that carried off our friends. What can you tell us? That you need not pursue them further, said Aylmer. The orcs are destroyed. Jackie observes here in the uh, Crowdcast chat, the closer he gets to Gondor, the more kingly Aragorn becomes. You know, we were talking last time about that moment of, gosh, reconciliation, moment of inspiration that passes between Boromir and Aragorn as Boromir lays dying, as Aragorn is suddenly assured, as he promises Boromir in a way that I think we all take universally to be sincere, he promises Boromir that Minas Tirith shall not fall. And we talked about the ways in which Boromir's stature, Boromir's heroism here, may have actually convinced Aragorn of something. Something may have been restored to Aragorn. Something of the line of kings, something of the blood of Numenor that has dwindled and diminished even in the Dúnedain of the North, that, that something here has been restored by the heroism of Boromir. And I wonder to what degree we now see this unmasking of Aragorn, this, this literal unmasking. Aragorn threw, threw back his cloak. He is literally uncloaked now as he stands before the riders of Rohan. The elven sheath glittered as he grasped it, and the bright blade of Anduril shone like a sudden flame as he swept it out. So he's holding the, the glittering jeweled uh, sheath that Galadriel gave him as they were leaving Lothlorien. And he draws forth Andril, the flame of the West, his sword, the sword that was broken and reforged. And then he caps it by calling out, Elendil, he cried. I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and am called Elessar the Elfstone, Dunedan, the heir of Isildur, Elendil, son of Gondor. I love that there's no punctuation in that, by the way. I love that his name, the heir of Isildur, Elendil, son of Gondor. And we see there kind of Tolkien's medievalism coming through, right? 200 years, 300 years, 400 years later, Isildur would be called Isildur Elendilson, right? That, that's kind of the derivation of that name. That's why we keep going back to that form in, in these more elevated, more arcane, more medieval kinds of conversations, kinds of discourse. Um, Here is the sword that was broken and is forged again. Will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. This is Aragorn uncloaked. This is, arguably, the first instance of Aragorn the king. We've seen flashes in the past of Aragorn being greater, of Aragorn elevated in stature, right? We have these moments as we're passing through the Argonoth, as we're even all the way back in Rivendell when Frodo looks upon Aragorn and he sees him clad in white. You know, this is a great and heroic figure, but what we're seeing there is not necessarily kingship. What we're seeing is the blood of Numenor, right? We're seeing the greatness of the men of old, but here we're getting the king. And we know that we're getting the king because we get the response from Gimli and Legolas. We get this great like narrative literary cutaway to the peanut gallery here. Gimli and Legolas looked at their companion in amazement, for they had not seen him in this mood before. He seemed to have grown in stature while Eomar had shrunk, and in his living face they caught a brief vision of the power and majesty of the kings of stone. The kings of stone here referring to the Argonoth uh, back on the river, the two great statues of, of the uh, Numenorean kings that they passed through into the lake. Um, we're, we're drawing that connection absolutely, you know, uh, absolutely clearly here, absolutely explicitly here. And Aragorn is demanding what is due to him. Will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. You owe me your loyalty. Will you aid me or thwart me? 
But then we move down as Aomer responds. Aomer, of course, has exactly the appropriate response. This is one of the ways in which we know that Aomer is a good guy. This is one of the ways in which we know that Aomer is a good capital M man. He is a good man of Rohan, right? He is, he is, he is well-intentioned and virtuous at this point because he casts down his proud eyes. He should be proud. He should challenge these interlopers to his land. But when the king is revealed, he should be acknowledged. And Eomer does so. He steps back with a look of awe on his face. He casts down his proud eyes. These are indeed strange days. He muttered dreams and legends spring to life out of the grass. Tell me, Lord, what brings you here? And what is the meaning of the dark words? Long has Boromir, son of Denethor, been gone seeking an answer. And the horse that we lent him comes back riderless. What doom do you bring out of the north? What doom do you bring out of the north? What, what, I mean... Probably not doom in the modern sense, right? We're going all the way back to to Elrond at the Council of the Council of Elrond. In fact, back at Rivendell here, that is the doom that we must deem. Doom meaning judgment. What is the doom that you bring out of the north? What is the judgment that you carry with you out of the north? To which Aragorn replies, the doom of choice. What is the choice that Aragorn is? offering here, or not even offering, but what is the choice that Aragorn is carrying with him here? He's carrying news of this choice more than he is embodying this choice itself. What is the nature of the choice? War is coming. Your life is going to be changed. No one is going to keep what they have. Uh, none may live now as they have lived, and few shall keep what they call their own. But of these great, great matters we will speak later. If chance allows, I will come myself to the king. So we're going to talk about all of that later. How the war is going to proceed? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. But what is the choice? with me or against me, aid me or thwart me. Will you stand with Sauron or will you stand with me? The battle lines are now being drawn. We'll move into that in just a minute. Who will Rohan side with, says Jackie. Exactly, exactly, yes. Good. Um, oh, interesting. Will asks here, why did Legolas see the flames but not Gimli? I think this is a connection to um, to the, the Elfstone part of, of Aragorn's name, right? The the star on the brow is is emblematic of the Numenorean kings. It is, it is something that we see again and again recurring back through Tolkien's Legendarium. And there are a couple of different versions of, of the star on the brow, but here we're drawing again that connection to Aragorn. So Legolas is seeing it because he's more intimately attuned to that kind of, of mythic tradition. Legolas sees more clearly. He is seeing here the shadow of, in a sense, the man that Aragorn was, the bloodline of, of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, going all the way back to Isildur and Elendil. You know, he's going, he's, he's seeing that tradition embodied in this man, but also perhaps seeing what is to come. Also seeing the, the truth of, of Aragorn here. Yeah. Which, not to suggest that Gimli is, you know, obtuse to the whole thing, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, let's keep pushing on. The orcs, we learn, are destroyed, but we need more news. All that you say is strange, Aragorn, he said. Yet you speak the truth, that is plain. The men of the Mark do not lie, and therefore they are not easily deceived. But you have not told all. Will you not now speak more fully of your errand so that I may judge what to do? I set out from Inladris, as it is named in the rhyme many weeks ago, answered, answered Arathorn. With me went Boromir of Minas Tirith. My errand was to go to, the city, go to that city with the son of Denethor to aid his folk in their war against Sauron, but the company that I journeyed with had other business. Of that I cannot speak now. Gandalf the Grey was our leader. Gandalf, Eomer exclaimed. Gandalf Greyhame is known in the mark, but his name, I warn you, is no longer a password to the king's favor. He has been a guest in the land many times in the memory of men, coming as he will after a season or after many years. He is ever the herald of strange events, a bringer of evil, some now say. Indeed, since his last coming in the summer, all things have gone amiss. At that time, our trouble with Saruman began. 
Until then, we counted Saruman our friend, but Gandalf came then and warned us that sudden war was preparing in Isengard. He said that he himself had been a prisoner in Orthanc and had hardly escaped, and he begged for help, but Theoden would not listen to him, and he went away. Speak not the name of Gandalf loudly in Theoden's ears. He is wroth. For Gandalf took the horse that is called Shadowfax, the most precious of all the king's steeds, chief of the Miris, which only the Lord of the Mark may ride. For the sire of their race was the great horse of Errol that knew the speech of man. Seven nights ago Shadowfax returned, but the king's anger is not less, for now the horse is wild and will let no man handle him. And Shadowfax has found his way alone from the far north, said Aragorn, for it was there that he and Gandalf parted. But alas, Gandalf will ride no longer. He fell into darkness in the mines of Moria and comes not again. That is heavy tidings, said Aomer, at least to me and to many, though not to all, as you may find if you come to the king. Just a quick throwaway thing here, just a quick little detail of backstory. Uh, Shadowfax is of the line of the, the Steed of Errol. Remember this story from last week that the riders of Rohan were granted this land because they came from the north to the aid of Gondor five centuries ago, led by their king Errol. So he comes down from the north, he helps the Gondorians fight back against the, the forces of Mordor, and is granted the realm of Rohan. He is granted what they themselves will call the Rittermark. And he, ca he carries with him a great line of horses, chief of the Miris, which only the lords of the Mark may ride. For the sire of their race was the great horse of Errol that knew the speech of men. Yep, Errol, when he came down from the north, had a talking horse. Eorl and Mr. Ed riding to the aid of Gondor, ready to fight back the shadow and then set up their kingdom here in Rohan. It's an unexpected detail, but I love it very much. So we get mostly here a recap of Gandalf's movements, kind of chiding, uh, chiming with the, um, with the story that he gives us back at the Council of Elrond, his account of his escape from Orthanc, fleeing south to, to Rohan, the taking of Shadowfax, more or less, we get that version of the story, and then escaping north again. We learn now that Shadowfax has returned, um, and, and seven nights ago, yes, it's taken this long for Shadowfax to return from the north, but he has made his way back. There is an interesting beat here from Aragorn right at the beginning, though. With me went Boromir of Minas Tirith. My errand was to go to that city with the son of Denethor to aid his folk in their war against Sauron. Was that his errand? Was that explicitly the quest upon which Aragorn was sent? Well, no, not really. I mean, not explicitly, not to the exclusion of all other things. The way that he presents it here, my errand, my single soul errand. But the company I journeyed with had other business of that I cannot speak now. This is Aragorn, who on the shores of Parthgallon, talking with Gimli and Legolas, said, I think I should go with Frodo, and Sam, obviously, and Gimli too. Legolas, Boromir, Merry, Pippin, you should, go to, you should go to Gondor. But I need to go with Frodo, obviously. That's my quest. That's why I'm here. But now he's turned away again. He's kind of reset his, his understanding of his own place in the world. I think it is very easy to underestimate how much the death of Boromir changes Aragorn. I think it's very easy to discount exactly how much he is altered by his experience with Boromir and by whatever it is that is transformed within him. Remember when he goes through that period of self-doubt that, that all that I have done today has gone amiss, you know, this, this cruel fate has ruined my choices and I need to start making better decisions, by the way? And he decides to set out after the hobbits. He decides not to set out after Frodo, partly because Frodo is the ring mirror and Frodo has made his decision, but partly because the immediate peril of Merry and Pippin is more pressing. 
is more necessary and his aid is certainly going to be essential in resolving it. Frodo might not need him. Merry and Pippin certainly do, or at least if there is any hope for Merry and Pippin, they certainly do. So Aragorn believes in that moment. So he turns away from, in effect, the role of the ranger and embraces the role of the king. It's curious to me that he introduces himself first as Strider to Aomer, because it feels as though we're building to that transition, right? This is, Aomer's experience of Strider is not dissimilar to our experience of Strider reading the book. Oh, here's Strider, he's a ranger. If you've played D&D, &D, you know exactly, you know, what, what perks and, and, and um, skills this guy has. Like, oh, the bow and the sword, okay, cool, right? We understand this character. Oh, but wait, that's not all. That's not all that he is. He is not Strider. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir, heir, excuse me, heir of Isildur, you know? He's the returning king, and that's the transition that we get from Eomer here. And I think that this is designed to emphasize how profoundly this change has, has taken place within Aragorn himself, yeah. Um, Rayla Lynn says, since the Adventure Zone, I can't help but picture Shadowfax as Garol. Uh, Garol, for those of you who have listened to the Adventure Zone, basically the best character. Yo, what's up? He's very good. He's very good. Um, let me see here. Yeah, horse theft is going to be a pretty serious offense to the Rohirrim, says Heroes and Bards. And Angela agrees, yes, Gandalf would have been hung in the Old West. Fair. Heroes and Bards also says that Gandalf's death unsettles him. Boromir's death sets him on his path resolved. Beautiful. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, I mean, gosh, it would have been lovely to get more of Aragorn while we were at Lothlorien then, wouldn't it? It would have been great to get... Uh, a stronger sense of his journey while we, we linger there in the Golden Wood. That's very good. Yes, as Skipa points out here, as King Aragorn has a duty to care to the people of Gondor now that Boromir is dead. Well, arguably, I mean, arguably he had a duty to care for the people of Gondor regardless of Boromir, right? But you're right, I think, that this, that simultaneously the death of Boromir and the redemption of Boromir, Boromir's great victory, has kindled something new within Aragorn. That that speaks to me very powerfully, yeah. Ethan says, I think if Gandalf had still been there, Aragorn would have set off for... Oh, I'm sorry, the chat scrolled there unexpectedly. Aragorn would have set off for Minas Tirith without hesitation, but he felt like he, felt like he had a duty to lead the Fellowship, whose goal is to go with the Ring. Um, yes, I'm not so sure about that. I'm honestly not so sure about that. He would have followed Gandalf's lead, I think. Um... I, I think he would have gone to Minas Tirith if Gandalf had told him to go to Minas Tirith. I think he would have gone with Frodo if Gandalf had told him to go with Frodo. But even he acknowledges Gandalf didn't have a plan, right? This is before we send Frodo off for his hour of solitude in which Boromir goes to him um, at, at Parth Galen, um, at, at Amon Han, I should say. Um, he says, you know, this is your choice, Frodo. I'm not Gandalf. I've tried my best to stand in for him, but hey... I'm just this guy out of the north. Sorry, I can't help you more than that. But even if Gandalf were here, I have a suspicion he would say, it's your decision, Frodo. And that kind of hierarchy of responsibility is, is echoed all the way through Fellowship, of course, all the way from, from Frodo's first decision through his decision at the Council of Elrond all the way through to his decision at the end of the book. Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. But I do think you're right. I think that Aragorn would have been more free to return to Gondor had... Okay, he would have been more free to return to Gondor if Gandalf had survived Moria, but there also, I think, would have been less, less propulsive necessity on his return to Gondor if Boromir had not fallen. I think that both of these things work in concert with each other, yeah. Good, okay. 
<laughs> As Cuba says, damn it, Frodo, I'm a king, not a wizard. Well, we can only do what we can do. Uh, do we know why Gandalf had the favor of the king before he became a horse thief, asks Will. Just a long, um, just a long tradition with the Rohirrim. He's been there many times. As it says, uh, as... Um, as Aymer says here, where are we? Um, gosh, oh, oh, it's in the paragraph before I was looking. He had been a guest in this land many times in the memory of men, coming as he will after a season or after many years, he is ever the herald of strange events. Well, we know that Gandalf, right? Because that's the Gandalf who came to the Shire too. Oh, a season passes and he shows up again. A few years pass and he shows up again. He brings fireworks. He brings news. He brings sometimes dwarves to go, go and have an adventure with. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, let me see. Yes, uh, Jackie's saying, I don't know. I think Aragorn said a few times he intended to go to Minas Tirith first at the leave-taking of Rivendell. That was part of the plan, certainly. But he he confirms when we get to Parth Gallon that he didn't know what Gandalf's, um, what Gandalf's plan was. And... Certainly my reading of that was, I don't know either. I'm not so sure either what his, what his actual intent was. Gosh, I'm spending a long time on this. Yes, so this is the question of Aragorn's errand. Regardless of what his errand was when he left uh, Rivendell, though, and regardless of what his errand was when Gandalf fell in Casa Doom, and regardless of what his errand was when he left Lothlorien, and regardless of what his errand was when he reached Parth Galen, here he is resolved. Here he is the king, and that's powerful. So, um, oh, Greyhame here, by the way, uh, Gandalf, Aymer exclaimed, Gandalf Greyhame. Greyhame simply means um, grey cloaked, grey gray garbed in this instance. So it's just, it's Gandalf the Grey. That's that's the, the connection that he's making there. But again, of course, we're pulling to the Anglo-Saxon because we just love the Anglo-Saxon. And we're reminded that the, the common speech is not the default speech of the Rohirrim, right? They, they genuinely, uh, generally and genuinely speak their own language that is incompatible with common, but here Eomer is, is speaking a little more freely. Okay, um, then we get the giving of the horses, we get the dash across uh, Rohan, and ultimately... Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, we don't get that yet. Instead, no, we're going to get the account of that first, and then we're going to see it happen. Instead, Gimli is going to ask about Sauron and going to ask about a strange presence that has been seen. Then you do, not you do not pay tribute to Sauron, said Gimli. We do not, and we never have, said Aomer with a flash of his eyes, though it comes to my ears that that lie has been told. Some years ago, the lord of the black land wished to purchase horses of us at great price, but we refused him, for he puts beasts to evil use. Then he sent plundering orcs, and they carry off what they can, choosing always the black horses. Few of these are now left. For that reason, our feud with the orcs is bitter. But at this time, our chief concern is with Saruman. He has claimed lordship over all this land, and there has been war between us for many months. He has taken orcs into his service, and wolf riders, and evil men, and he has closed the gap against us, so that we are likely to be beset both east and west. It is ill dealing with such a foe. He is a wizard, both cunning and dwimmercrafty, having many guises. He walks here and there, they say, as an old man, hooded and cloaked, very like to Gandalf, as many now recall. His spies slip through every net, and his birds of ill omen are abroad in the sky. I do not know how it will all end, and my heart misgives me, for it seems to me that his friends do not all dwell in Isengard. But if you come to the king's house, you shall see for yourself. Will you not come? Do I hope in vain that you have been sent to me for a help in doubt and need? I will come when I may, said Aragorn. Do I hope in vain that you have been sent to me for a help in doubt and need, asks Eomer. Ah, uh, you're the king. 
You are uncloaked before me. I see your sword there, the flame of the west. This is the sword that was broken and reforged. So you're going to come with me and we're going to go and see the king and you're going to help, right? Because things are dire indeed. We are beset by the, the orcs of Mordor on the east. We are harried by the orcs of the Misty Mountain to the north. And now Saruman and his orcs and his evil men and his wolf riders are attacking us from the west. Rohan is a bad place to be right now. Um, so we learn here that the people of Rohan, the Rohirrim, have never, sell, uh, never sold horses to Saruman, though he confirms that he has heard that lie. No, orc raiding parties come and they take the horses, often the black ones, usually the black ones, and the black ones are now, you know, rare in Rohan, but that's where they're getting these horses. But the men of Rohan stand true. The men of Rohan stand, uh, stand proud here. Um, let me see as I catch up with the chat. Amir is so very alone and out of his depth here, says Hero and Bards. Yes, exactly. Sent by one Iluvatar, perhaps, wonders Jackie. Yes, exactly. Right. You are the answer to my prayers. You are the literal answer to my literal prayers, Aragorn. This is great. So you're going to come with me, right? But Aragorn says, I will come when I may. Because for all that he is now the king, for all that he is now uncloaked in this regard, his first commitment is not to Minas Tirith or the people of Gondor or even the people of Rohan. His first commitment is to Merry and Pippin. It is to those individuals who are under his personal care, those individuals that he personally has failed. Well, certainly he feels that he failed. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, so some years ago, the Lord of the Blackland wished to purchase horses of us at a great price, but we refused him for he puts beasts to evil use. Again, the specificity of the close reading here is essential. He wished, to, he wished to purchase horses from us at great price, but we refused him for he puts beasts to evil use. Why are the Rohirrim not selling horses to Sauron? Because they would be put to evil use. That, I think, is an ambiguous statement. The horses themselves will be used for evil. That is to say, he will, he will mount his army on these horses and then terrible things will happen. But it also seems as though the beasts themselves will suffer. The horses themselves will suffer to evil use. And then we get, then he sent plundering orcs. They carry off what they can, choosing always the black horses. Few of those are now left. For that reason, our feud with the orcs is bitter. Because the orcs have crossed the river and come into our land and taken our horses, that is why our feud with the orcs is bitter. It doesn't say that's why we fight orcs. They're still good men. They're still men recently of the north and now of, of the north of Gondor, I suppose. But they are, are now pitched in a, in a feud with the orcs because they are taking their horses. But that's, I mean, that's bad. That's terrible. Our eastern flank, it's a mess. But... The real problem is Saruman. He has claimed lordship over all this land, and there has been war between us for many months. He's taken orcs, wolf riders, evil men. He has closed the gap against us, closed the gap of Rohan, the, the, the gap in the mountains there. So we are, we are likely to be beset both east and west. It is ill dealing with such a foe. He is a wizard, both cunning and dwimmer crafty, having many guises. So he can transform himself and move through the world. Dwimmer um, is the old English word for... Uh, for illusions and, and for phantasms. So he's Dwimmer Crafty, means that he can and weave illusions. That's the, the, the core of what Amor is getting at there. He walks here and there, they say, as an old man hooded and cloaked, very like to Gandalf, as many now recall. So he too is a harbinger of evil here. We are becoming distrustful, not just of Gandalf, because he took Shadowfax and is a harbinger of bad news anyway, but also because 
all wizards are now proving themselves unreliable, are proving themselves deceitful, are proving themselves treacherous. Dwimmer is a great word, says Heroes and Bards. You're absolutely right. It is. It's pretty great. Yes. Good. Um, excellent. Okay. Gosh, I really must keep pushing on. Uh, one more bit of uh, information before we leave Aomar and the Riders of Rohan for now. There was a silence for suddenly... Oh, excuse me. I'm misremembering which slides I pulled because I pulled these slides last week. This is not, in fact, before we leave Aomar. This is after we leave Aomar. This is when we get the horses from the Rohirrim and we set out in pursuit. There was a silence for suddenly the dark and unknown forest so near at hand made itself felt as a great brooding presence full of secret purpose. After a while, Legolas spoke again. Celeborn warned us not to go far into Fangorn, he said. Do you know why, Aragorn? What are the fables of the forest that Boromir had heard? I've heard many tales in Gondor and elsewhere, said Aragorn. But if it were not for the words of Celeborn, I would deem them only fables that men have made as true knowledge fades. I had thought of asking you what was the truth of the matter. And if an elf of the wood does not know, how shall a man answer? You have journeyed further than I, said Legolas. I have heard nothing of this in my own land, save only songs that tell how the Onodrim, that men call Ents, dwelt there long ago, for Fangorn is old, old even as the elves would reckon it. Yes, it is old, said Aragorn, as old as the forest by the Barrowdowns, and it is far greater. Elrond says the two are akin, the last strongholds of the mighty woods of the elder days in which the firstborn roamed while men still slept, yet Fangorn holds some secret of its own. What it is, I do not know. And I do not wish to know, said Gimli. Let nothing that dwells in Fangorn be troubled on my account. They now drew lots for the watches, and the lot of the first watch fell to Gimli. The others lay down. Almost at once sleep laid hold on them. Gimli, said Aragorn drowsily, remember, it is perilous to cut bough or twig from a living tree in Fangorn. Do not stray far in search of dead wood. Let the fire die, rather. Call me at need. So, Fangorn Forest, fabled and dangerous. Celeborn has warned them not to go into it. Boromir had certainly heard stories too. Tales are told in Gondor, though Aragorn would have discounted those tales as fables that, that have emerged in the place of true knowledge as memory has faded among the peoples of Gondor. He would have discounted those, those fables if not for Celeborn's warning. It is akin, we are told, to the old forest east of Buckland, east of the Shire, where we ran, of course, into Tom Bombadil. This is a fragment of the same forest that has faltered in the lands between, but still, once upon a time, it covered... Well, what did it cover? All of Rohan? All of Eregion on the western edge of the mountain? Did it, did it plunge recklessly through the gap of Rohan and just run constantly from Minas Tirith to the Shire? Possibly, arguably, yes. I mean, that certainly seems to be, <coughs> excuse me, what Aragorn is suggesting here. This is an ancient forest in the first age when the elves awoke and were dancing under the stars before there were men. This forest was here. And yet there was something far stranger about it. And what happens here in the shadow of Fangorn? Well, we lay down to sleep. They drew lots for the watches, and the lot for the first watch fell to Gimli. The others lay down almost at once, sleep laid hold on them. Gimli said Aragorn drowsily. The last time we were around an ancient forest, we also felt suddenly sleepy. You remember the influence of Old Man Willow on the hobbits as we're cutting through the old forest on our way to Bree? He sings the song of sleep, and they sleep, and only Sam's... Doughty resilience manages to get them through that. 
And it's true, of course, that they've been running for days, that they've been pursuing the Orc party across the entire expanse. The, the, the green sword of Rohan here has been crossed by Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, a, a truly epic journey. And of course, they are actually exhausted. But it's no, it's no coincidence, I think, that in this moment where we are literally you know, beneath the shadow, we're in the influence... Look at that first paragraph. There was a silence, for suddenly the dark and unknown forest so near at hand made itself felt as a great brooding presence, full of secret purpose. After a while, Legolas spoke again. Note that this is not made... It is metaphorical, but it's not turned into a simile here. This is not a direct account. There was a silence, for suddenly the dark and unknown forest so near at hand made itself felt. Made itself felt. This is a statement of agency. This is positive action that is taking place here. No, it was as though the dark forest made itself felt. It was, you know, Gimli shivered, feeling as though the dark forest had made itself felt. No, we're, we're actually crediting the forest with this action. The, the dark and unknown forest so near at hand made itself felt as a great brooding presence full of secret purpose. Made itself felt not just as a forest and not as, you know, a, a benevolent companion here out on the plains of Rohan. Made itself felt as a great brooding presence full of secret purpose. That is the... the, um, the, the deliberate intent of the forest in this moment. And Legolas pauses. Celeborn warned us not to go far into Fangorn. Uh, how come? I'm now thinking about this for the first time. I'm an elf who literally comes from a magical forest, you guys, and I'm freaked out by Fangorn. Fangorn is pretty bad news. And Aragorn says, well, yeah, I've heard stories, but if not for Celeborn's warnings, I probably wouldn't have paid that much, that much attention to them. I wouldn't have given them that much credence. And if an elf of the wood doesn't know, then how shall I know? You've journeyed further than I, said Legolas implicitly taking a half step back from Fangorn Forest. I've heard nothing of this in my own land, save only songs that tell how the Anodrim that men call Ents dwelt there long ago, for Fangorn is old, old even as the elves would reckon it. Yes, says Aragorn, it is old, as old as the forest by the Baradans, and it is far greater. And because it is far greater, it is, and because it is as old, it presumably has the same gestalt mentality, as the old forest does. We talked about this back when we were discussing the old forest. It was, seems like a million years ago, but was perhaps, what, six months ago? If that. Um, as the hobbits cross the old forest and, and ultimately enter the Withywindle and end up with Tom Bombadil after facing down Old Man Willow, we talked about the ways in which the forest itself, not the individual trees of the forest, but the forest, capital F, takes action against the hobbits and what that means and what that represents. And certainly the suggestion here is that the same is going to be true within Fangorn. It is alive, in a sense, in the same sense as the Old Forest, but is perhaps even greater. And we get our first introduction here of Ents to Fangorn, by the way. Fangorn is pretty great. Fangorn is the Sindarin word, the Sindarin compound for beard tree. Beard tree. So, you know, we're, we're not really... <laughs> We're not getting that far away from names that uh, Tolkien has used before. Fangorn, for the longest time, actually was the name of a character who will be introduced very soon in the story. For, for the longest time in the early drafts of The Lord of the Rings, that character was called Fangorn before his name was, was altered. But yes, Fangorn Forest, Beard Tree Forest. And then we conclude here as they're, as they're resting in the, uh, in, on the fringes of Fangorn Forest. We conclude our chapter with this. With that, he fell asleep. Legolas already lay motionless, his fair hands folded upon his breast, his eyes unclosed, blending living night and deep dream as is the way with elves. 
Gimli sat hunched by the fire, running his thumb thoughtfully along the edge of his axe. The tree rustled. There was no other sound. Suddenly Gimli looked up, and there, just on the edge of the firelight, stood an old bent man, leaning on a staff and wrapped in a great cloak. His wide-brimmed hat was pulled down over his eyes. Gimli sprang up, too amazed for the moment to cry out, though at once the thought flashed into his mind that Saruman had caught them. Both Aragorn and Legolas, roused by his sudden movement, sat up and stared. The old man did not speak or make a sign. "'Well, father, what can we do for you?' said Aragorn, leaping to his feet. "'Come and be warm if you're cold.' He strode forward, but the old man was gone. There was no trace of him to be found near at hand." and they did not dare to wander far. The moon had set, and the night was very dark. Suddenly Legolas gave a cry. The horses! The horses! The horses were gone. They had dragged their pickets and disappeared. For some time the three companions stood still and silent, troubled by this new stroke of ill fortune. They were under the eaves of Fangorn, and endless leagues lay between them and the men of Rohan, their only friends in this wide and dangerous land. As they stood, it seemed to them that they heard far off in the night the sound of horses whinnying and neighing. Then all was quiet again except for the cold rustle of the wind. Yes, the night is dark and full of terrors, says Jenna Katz. Also noting, Legolas sleeps like a creeper, eyes wide open. Um, yes. Isn't this fascinating? With, uh, with that, he fell asleep. This is Aragorn continuing from the, the dialogue that we saw on the last slide. Already so overwhelmed with sleep that he is drowsy as he's saying to Gimli, Hey, Gimli, just... Stay awake, take the watch, it's going to be fine. Uh, don't in any way harm a tree. That would be really, really bad. Don't do that. And don't let the fire get out of control. Also very, very bad. Don't anger the forest, Gimli, is what I'm saying. Anyway, night-night. With that, he fell asleep. Legolas already lay motionless, his fair hands folded upon his breast, his eyes unclosed, blending living night and deep dream, as is the way with elves. So Legolas is laying motionless, his fair hands folded upon his breast, so presumably laying on his back, his hands across his chest, his eyes open and staring into the night sky, staring up at the stars here, blending living night and deep dream, as is the way with elves. One of the questions that is often asked about Tolkien by people who, you know, haven't studied the text very carefully is, do elves sleep? Apparently not. Apparently, they don't sleep in a way that we would completely recognize. Blending living night and deep dream, this feels as though it is more meditative, right? It feels as though this is certainly a necessary kind of, of restoration for Legolas. He is resting here, but not sleeping per se. And in a, uh, a letter with his publishers, Tolkien kind of outlined his reasoning for this, kind of outlined why it was that, that he uh, wanted to, to take this route rather than making elves sleep normally or going into some depth about how it is that elves don't sleep. And basically it comes down to two things. He, he offers some justification saying, yeah, there's really not an opportunity to talk about it that freely, but it comes down to two things. One, I don't want to go into it. I don't want to pin this down because the second argument there should be things which are mysterious. There should be things which are unknown. There should be things, there should be evocative details that give that illusion of depth. That seemed to be a conscious decision that he made. It's pretty great. Katie notes, Legolas sleeps like an Egyptian mummy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and there go the horses. So the horses are taken, but what do we make of this... Um, this scene here. So Legolas is motionless asleep. Aragorn first, asleep. Legolas, motionless, arms folded, doing elven sleeping, whatever that is. Gimli, hunched by the fire, running his thumb thoughtfully along the edge of the axe. The tree rustled. Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, tree. We're getting the sense that there are 
four characters in this scene. The, the tree here is kind of symbolic of Fangorn Forest itself. Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli all in quiet repose. The tree rustling, just rustling. No creaking of boughs, no whipping in the wind, nothing more dramatic. Just a little rustle, just a little exhalation from the tree here. There was no other sound. These are the sounds of the company here. There is no other sound. Suddenly Gimli looked up. There on the edge of the firelight stood an old bent man leaning on a staff, wrapped in a great cloak, wide-brimmed hat, the whole deal. Gimli sprang up, too amazed for the moment to cry out, though at once the thought flashed into his mind that Saruman had caught them. Um, Arrested Development narrator voice? Saruman had caught them. It turns out that this is Saruman, as will be revealed to us in the pages to come, or is at least most likely Saruman, as will be revealed to us in the pages to come. A lot of creepy woods in Tolkien, says Ray Lolin. Wonder what that's about. Well, creepy, huh. Creepy as distinct from evil, right? Creepy as distinct from malevolent. The woods here, the forests are not evil. That is not their nature. What they are is alien. This is not a place where men belong. Men should not venture here. And, and I guess men, I'm, I'm using in its broadest possible sense, elves, well, even elves here, elves, dwarves, men, hobbits, things which are not of the forest do not belong in this forest. That's for sure, exactly the same way as the old forest, which kind of gives us another perspective on Tom Bombadil. And I would encourage you, we're not really going to get the chance to talk about it in the pages to come, but I would encourage you to talk, uh, to think a little about Tom Bombadil as we move through Fangorn Forest, because the explicit connection between Fangorn and the old forest on the eastern border of the Shire is a powerful one. Yeah. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, quotes Leslie Skipa. And Heroes and Bard says, wild, not evil. Yes, wild, not evil. Good. Good. Was Fangorn upset and brooding because Saruman was there, says Shane. Interesting question. Um, you know, I've never thought about how Fangorn... Because, okay, obviously we're going to talk about Treebeard, right? We're going to get to Treebeard very, very soon. The problem is that Treebeard ascends immediately as a voice of the forest. But I'm not convinced 100% that Treebeard's voice is the voice of Fangorn, because we've just talked about how Fangorn is a living entity itself. It seems to have an awareness and an identity all of its own in exactly the same way as the Old Forest does. Let's keep an eye on that. Let's let's keep track of that, actually, and look at the ways in which we're supposed to and, and encouraged to, to combine the perspectives of Treebeard and Fangorn Treebeard and Beard Tree. That's my title for next week, in fact. Treebeard and Beard Tree. Look at the ways in which we're supposed to combine those perspectives and look at the ways in which we're supposed to differentiate between those perspectives. Angela Lurie also asks the, uh, the very important question, what is the deal with horse-stealing wizards? You just can't, if, if there's a wizard around, you just can't leave a horse. Though, this is the question, right? What happens to the horses? Suddenly Legolas gave a cry. The horses, the horses! The horses were gone. That's another Arrested Development narrator moment, isn't it? <laughs> the horses, the horses, the horses had gone. They had dragged their pickets and disappeared. For some time, the three companions stood still and silent, troubled by this new stroke of ill fortune. They were under the eaves of Fangorn, and endless leagues lay between them and the men of Rohan, their only friends in this white and dangerous land. As they stood, it seemed to them that they heard, far off in the night, the sound of horses whinnying and neighing. Then all was quiet again, except for the cold rustle of the wind. The cold rustle of the wind, the wind is not rustling. What is rustling? the tree. Here we are under the eaves of Fangorn. Is this strange, old, wizard-looking dude responsible for the horses? Well, possibly. 
But look at the way that we get this account and look at where the focus of the narrative is. They had dragged their pickets and disappeared. For some time, the three companions stood still and silent, troubled by this new stroke of ill fortune. And again, ill fortune coming up. Chance of chance you call it coming up here, okay? So, so as soon as the narrator mentions fortune and luck, we are primed by now, even if we haven't read The Hobbit, we are primed by now to pay close attention. They were under the eaves of Fangorn. Here we are, under the eaves of Fangorn. We're on the fringes of the forest. The endless leagues lay between them and the men of Rohan, their only friends in this wide and dangerous land. The, the land is wide and dangerous, right? In that direction. But it is not wide in the sense of being, you know, the rolling hills of Rohan. It is not wide to the west here. It is not wide in the direction of Fangorn. If they go into the forest, the world will be anything but wide. It will continue to be dangerous. As they stood, it seemed to them that they heard far off in the night the sound of horses whinnying and neighing. Then all was quiet again, except for the cold rustle of the wind. Again, the wind does not rustle. The tree rustles. So here we are under the eaves of Fangorn. This moment of luck, chance, if chance you call it, and then we close out on the rustling tree, which is introduced to us at the beginning of this slide, right? The tree rustled. There was no other sound. We're including the tree in the company of companions here. Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, tree. Excellent. We've, we've got our party. We're ready to go. You know, it's the essential components of a good D&D &D adventuring party. We've got our warrior. We've got our ranger. We've got our dwarf. And we've got, you know, a tree. Um... <laughs> Excellent D&D party, in fact. Um, and then we close out on that same image. So I'm concerned here that, that Fangorn actually had as much to do with the horses breaking their pickets and running, uh, dragging their pickets, I should say, as Saruman here. Yeah, good. Um, let me see. Yes, don't underestimate or disrespect the trees. Right, Saruman, says uh, Rayla Lynn. Yes, good, good. And Joseph points out, something that seems like ill fortune, great, something fortuitous is about to happen. This is exactly right. You know, after a point, you would think, oh, this was really unlucky. Excellent. <laughs> something great is coming our way. All we have to do is identify the opportunity and take it. And we're going to be just fine. Just fine. Yes. As Heroes and Bard says, that picket was obviously not tied very well. Where did we picket the horses? I mean, clearly some distance away. They're not right there in the clearing. Otherwise, we would have seen them go, right? Did we just tie them around a tree? Did the tree somehow shake off the, the, um, the, the rope there that was holding them? It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's, uh, oh, oh, Rayla Lynn is breaking the, uh, breaking the cardinal rule here because you know how strictly we only like to talk about, uh, talk about things Tolkien and Tolkien related here on there and back again, but she's asking about stranger things tomorrow. Ah, uh, yeah. We're very excited about Stranger Things tomorrow. Anyway, uh, stay tuned, you guys. There's a very good chance I'll be doing a one-shot on the second season of Stranger Things once I've caught up with it. Okay, let's uh, move on. That is the end of chapter two, believe it or not. That is the end of chapter two. I knew that we had a lot left over. We don't have that many slides for chapter three, though, so we can move right into it. Chapter three, the Uruk High. Here we cut back a few days into Pippin's perspective, and this is what we get. Pippin lay in a dark and troubled dream. It seemed, he could, it seemed that he could hear his own small voice echoing in black tunnels, calling, Frodo! Frodo! But instead of Frodo, hundreds of hideous orc faces grinned at him out of the shadows. Hundreds of hideous arms grasped at him from every side. Where was Mary? He woke. Cold air blew on his face. He was lying on his back. Evening was coming and the sky above was growing dim. He turned and found that the dream was little worse than the waking. His wrists, legs, and ankles were tied with cords. Beside him, Mary lay, white-faced, with a dirty rag bound across his brows. All about them sat or stood a great company of orcs. Slowly in Pippin's, in Pippin's aching head, memory pieced itself together and became separated from dream shadows. 
Of course. He and Mary had run off into the woods. What had come over them? Why had they dashed off like that, taking no notice of old Strider? They had run a long way, shouting. He could not remember how far or how long, and then suddenly they had crashed right into a group of orcs. They were standing, listening. They did not appear to see Mary and Pippin until they were almost in their arms. Then they had yelled, and dozens of other goblins had sprung out of the trees. Mary and he had drawn their swords, but the orcs did not wish to fight, and had tried only to lay hold of them, even when Mary had cut off several of their arms and hands. Good old Mary. Then Boromir had come leaping through the trees. He had made them fight. He slew many of them, and the rest fled. But he had not gone far on the way... Excuse me, but they had not gone far on the way back when they were attacked again by a hundred orcs at least, some of them very large, and they shot a rain of arrows always at Boromir. Boromir had blown his great horn till the woods rang, and at first the orcs had been dismayed and had drawn back. But when no answer but the echoes came, they had attacked more fiercely than ever. Pippin did not remember much more. His last memory was of Boromir leaning against a tree, plucking out an arrow... Then darkness fell suddenly. Pippin, we learned here, was knocked unconscious and is just now coming to. Um, Katie says, are we distinguishing between orcs and goblins? Uh, no, we're continuing to use those words interchangeably. Mostly orcs, occasionally goblins. We just, we use the, uh, they had yelled and dozens of other goblins. So we're drawing the, uh, here there are lots of orcs that we are fighting and other goblins come. Orcs and goblins are the same thing. Uh, goblin seems to be, <laughs> goblin is the hobbit word for uh for orcs in the sense that it is the word that is used within the pages of the hobbit but it also seems to be the hobbit word for orcs in that the hobbits themselves are more inclined to describe orcs as goblins in much the same way i suppose as, as legolas would use the word ich, which is yes still one of my favorites one of my absolute favorite um so here we are finally uh, almost an hour into today's session getting into mary and pippin's excellent adventure this is pretty great um so we have the uh, we have the dream, then we have the recollection, and I love this idea. Slowly, in Pippin's aching head, memory pieced itself together and became separated from dream shadows. Of course, he and Mary had run off into the woods. This is just lovely. This is this is such a beautiful way of, of describing that moment where you awake from a terrible dream and kind of have to reconnect the details of the world that you know to be true, the world that you know to be real. Here, Pippin is doing the same thing. It's it's wonderful. The detail then that they... they So they run through the forest. Um, he could not remember how far or how long, and suddenly they crashed right into the group of orcs. They were standing listening, and they did not appear to see Merry and Pippin until they were almost in their arms. The orcs are standing in the forest, in the, the, the trees at Amonhan. They're standing in the trees listening. And Mary and Pippin just run right into them. They don't see Mary and Pippin until it is almost too late, but they also don't hear them, which takes us all the way back to the beginning of our discussions here on There and Back Again, when we describe hobbits as moving silently. Hobbits can move very, very quietly, do move very, very quietly, even when they're not trying to be stealthy. Hobbits are silent in the forests, and even the orcs, even the trained hunters of, of these orcs, can't hear them. And then, of course, they can't see them until they burst out onto them because of the elven cloaks, too. The, the cloaks aren't wrapped around, but they do seem to have some kind of, of constant effect, some, some passive magical effect, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Katie asks, can we have a Mary and Pippin's Excellent Adventure movie, please? Yes, we, should, we definitely should. Um, uh, let me see. Skipa is... I'm seeing Skipa called out. Um, yes, I was thinking it was a regional thing. All goblins are orcs, but only goblins come from the south or something like that. Well, yeah, we have drawn the distinction between the goblins of Mordor... So far, we've drawn the distinction between the goblins of Mordor and the goblins of the Misty Mountains, right? The orcs of Mordor and the orcs of the Misty Mountains. And we've had this, this intimation that, oh, wait, there's also something else. Like, there's also something worse. We've seen the uh, the White Hand and Esrun of, of Saruman branded on some of these orcs, and we're 
unsure about that. Um, yeah, it's it's the biggest thing that makes me convinced that orcs and goblins are intended to be the same thing is simply that we're referring constantly uh, in these pages to the orcs of the Misty Mountains. And we know throughout the pages of The Hobbit that the creatures that live in the Misty Mountains are goblins. So because of that detail and because of the way which, in which we're using orcs and goblins apparently interchangeably, again, other goblins is used in this slide, right? We're not drawing a distinction between orcs and goblins. We're actually drawing a comparison between orcs and goblins. Or we're, we're, we're saying that these are effectively and functionally the same thing. So yes, there are different tribes of orcs. And yes... Some may be more inclined to be called goblins, but personally, I'm I'm more of the opinion that it is less about the the subject of the sentence and more about the speaker of the sentence. That is to say, that hobbits are more likely to use the word goblin than than other uh, races are. Certainly, um, so this is Pippin awaking, and then he's knocked unconscious and carried away, and we get this heartbreaking account of Boromir's stand. Right, Boromir runs out. He he comes leaping through the trees. He had made them fight. One of my favorite lines in this part of the book. He had made them fight. He slew many of them, and the rest fled. They had not gone far on their way back when they were attacked again by a hundred orcs at least some of them very large and they shot a rain of arrows always at Boromir. A hundred orcs attack Boromir and he slays, as we know, 20 of them. That's a remarkable stand against overwhelming forces. Yeah. Yeah, Jenna says he had made them fight because the hobbits didn't. Well, okay, so we should analyze this. Why don't the orcs fight the hobbits? Because the orcs are under strict instructions. The hobbits are not to be killed, as we'll see in, in, later, uh, in later pages. Yeah, good. Yes, Seastar uh, points out in The Hobbit, Gandalf speaks of goblins, hobgoblins, and orcs, but he doesn't say why he uses uh, uses different terms. And other goblins might mean other evil creatures. Oh, I see, Skipa. So you're saying that, yes, okay. So we're drawing the, the idea here that that um, uh, goblins is, is a greater uh, field than just orcs? Possibly, interestingly. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, good, okay. Yes, as Jackie says, it's almost like you have to be a resident of Middle Earth to understand the subtle differences between the orc tribes. Sure, fair enough, yeah. Jenna says they could have forced the orcs to fight, they're just not experienced enough. Well, I'm not sure that it's about experience, right? Mary is is laying about with his sword here. Uh, Mary and he had drawn their swords, but the orcs did not wish to fight and had tried only to lay hold of them, even when Mary had cut off several of their arms and hands. Cut off several of their arms and hands, which... By the way, that's a bloody sight to behold if you come across that part of the forest, you know, in the days to come. Um, why aren't the orcs fighting back? Presumably because they're under these strict instructions. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. All right. Let's uh, keep moving on to talk about the orc language. He struggled a little, quite uselessly. One of the orcs sitting near laughed and said something to a companion in their abominable tongue. Rest while you can, little fool he said then to Pippin in the common speech, which he made almost as hideous as his own language. Rest while you can. We'll find a use for your legs before long. You'll wish you got none before we get home. If I had my way... Oh, excuse me. If I had my way, you'd wish you'd be dead now, said the other. I'd make you squeak, you miserable rat. He stooped over Pippin, bringing his yellow fangs close to his face. He had a black knife with a long, jagged blade in his hand. Lie quiet or I'll tickle you with this, he hissed. Don't draw attention to yourself or I may forget my orders. Curse the eyes and garters. Ugluksha-pushtugsharamangobuboshkai, he said, passing into a long, angry speech in his own tongue that slowly died away into muttering and snarling. Terrified, Pippin lay still, though the pain at his wrists and ankles was growing and the stones beneath him were boring into his back. 
To take his mind off himself, he listened intently to all that he could hear. There were many voices round about, and though orc speech sounded at, f- at times, at all times, excuse me, full of hate and anger, it seemed plain that something like a quarrel had begun and was getting hotter. To Pippin's surprise, he found that much of the talk was intelligible. Many of the orcs were using ordinary language. Apparently the members of two or three quite different tribes were present, and they could not understand one another's orc speech. There was an angry debate concerning what they were to do now, which excuse me, which way, were, which way they were to take, and what would be done with the prisoners. "'There's no time to kill them properly,' said one. "'No time for play on this trip.' "'That can't be helped,' said another. "'But why not kill them quick? Kill them now. "'There's a cursed nuisance and we're in a hurry. "'Evening's coming on, and we ought to get a move on.' "'Orders,' said a third voice in a deep growl. "'Kill all but not the halflings. "'They are to be brought back alive as quickly as possible. "'That's my orders.' Orders here. This is our introduction, I suppose. We, we've already had a suggestion of this. We've already had a hint of this from Aomer, who says, actually, and, and, and indeed from, from Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas themselves, finding the evidence of this conflict. But we've had some suggestion that, yes, all is not well with the orcs. There is some internal conflict in the orc community here. And now we're seeing this pulled out powerfully. This is also, though, functionally our introduction to orcs. I mean, we've spent some time with orcs in the past, down down to Goblin Town, of course. We've had some orc poetry, even, and spent some time in, in that community and drawn some comparisons between that community and the dwarves of the Hobbit, uh, the dwarves of Erebor in particular. But this is very different. Here we're going to get individual orcs. We're going to get orcs with names and with personal agendas, and we're getting this internal conflict. No longer are they this monolithic foe, and this, I think, is part of... Tolkien's increased ambition and also his shift in focus. This is one of the ways in which The Lord of the Rings is differentiated from The Hobbit. The Hobbit is a fairy tale. The Lord of the Rings is history. And those two things are oftentimes, you know, similar. Oftentimes they overlap. Oftentimes they are resonant, the one with the other, but they also have very different <sighs> it's almost a very different focal length, right? It's not just the object of the focal uh, of the focus of the piece, but it's the um, it's the the dimensionality of the focus of the piece. The history looks more closely, but also more distantly. Whereas fairy tale gives us a more superficial gloss that speaks more to the the immediate emotional responses that the reader is supposed to experience, that the, the storyteller is seeking to evoke. And I think that by individuating the orcs through this sequence, we're seeing, again, another example of Tolkien breaking away from the fairy tale gloss of The Hobbit into the accounting, the, the, the documentary record-keeping of The Lord of the Rings. That, to me, is a very big uh, and important distinction between the two texts. Um, let me see. Uh, was this a trope before Tolkien asks heroes and bards ordered not to harm a prisoner a fright a fight breaks out because of it and the prisoners escape um yes i mean yes this is this is an old fairy tale trope but also even by the time that Tolkien was writing this this trope had been used in in you know swashbuckling adventures you know the the, the scarlet pimpernel uses this more than once um yes this was already a pretty codified trope uh, by the time that Tolkien got his hands on it but once again Tolkien uh, Tolkien plays it straight yes yes good uh, yes, uh, orcs have poetry, asks Will. Did I hear that wrong? Um, songs more than poetry, but yes, the, uh, the, the Black Crack song from, uh, the Down Down to Goblin Town song, I guess, from The Hobbit. Yes, technically. Um, good, good. Okay, let's, uh, look then. So, so the Black Speech is, um, 
The black speech is the name given to, to the Orkish dialect here. Apparently there are at least three Orkish dialects, which by the way, for those of you keeping track at home, Mordor, Misty Mountains, Isengard, these are our three tribes of orcs that we seem to be dealing with right now. That is to say the orcs of the Misty Mountains are the more independent orcs, but are still absolutely under the sway of Sauron. The orcs of Mordor, the orcs of Barador are, are profoundly under the influence of Sauron. They are, they are under his direct influence and direct control. The orcs of Isengard under the control of Saruman at this point. Um, the Urukai, the eponymous Urukai, of course, which we'll get to in just a moment. So the black speech is um, is an interesting language in that it may have been uh, spawned from, uh, or it may have emerged, evolved from Valorin, which is the language of the Valar. There is a great bit in the Silmarillion. Gosh, is it in the Silmarillion? Now I'm forgetting where it is. There's a great beat somewhere in Tolkien's Legendarium where it is described that elves don't actually like the language of the Valar. They don't like Valoran because it sounds weird and unpleasant to them. And it's interesting that obviously the black speech uh, carries with it that that similar that similar essence. Yes, it, it's it's a, a curious thing. Uh, Tolkien describes the language as existing in two forms. So there are the the pure form. There is the pure form, the kind of distilled and and uh, ancient form of the black speech that is used by Sauron himself, that is used by the Nazgul, that is used by you know the great forces of evil in the world. And then there's this debased kind of uh, you know. Uh, commonplace um, version of the black speech that is used by um, all the, the soldiers and servants of, of Barador by the, the end of the Third Age. So yes. Um, oh, there is. Oh, I wanted to show you this, actually. Let me... Um, is there anything else that we want to talk about here? Um... Oh, Ugluk Japashdug Saruman Glob Bubosh Sky translates as Ugluk to the cesspool, the dung filth, the great Saruman fool... Sky. Sky there is is used as a like uh, uh, orcish exclamation. Sky. Uh, you know, uh, it could be profanity. It could just be an interjection. We're not entirely sure. But yes, Ugluk to the cesspool, the dung filth, the great Saruman fool. So again, here we're seeing this tension between those who follow Saruman and those who don't, the, the Orokai and those who don't. Um, good. Are we quoting the uh, Are we quoting the Goblin song? That's excellent. Where there's a whip, there's a way. <laughs> good. Good. Okay, let's, um, yes, scatological swearing from the orc suggests Diana in the, in the Crowdcast chat. Yes. How do you know the translation of that, says Seastar? Uh, it is given in uh, one of the appendices of The Return of the King. You can go and find it at the back of the book. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So that's our translation there. Curse the Isengarders, and then we get the insult. We get the introduction of Ugluk, who's going to be um, uh, more interesting or, or more significant later, uh, and the reference to Saruman there, which even if you can't translate the black speech, obviously you're seeing Saruman there, which is good, and, and the black speech does not translate beautifully anyway. Uh, it sounded at all times full of hate and anger. It seemed plain, to some, uh, plain that something like a quarrel had begun and was getting hotter, and then we'll get the accounting of that. Um, I got a question on Twitter the other day asking if it was a cop-out that the uh, that the orcs spoke the common tongue that they spoke Westron here. And um, I guess was, possibly I'm exaggerating the intent of that question. Is it a cop-out is maybe a little too much, but is it too convenient, effectively? Is this Tolkien breaking his own internal narrative, i.e. the orcs should all speak the black speech, and we'll leave it at that, but that wouldn't let Pippin understand what it was that they were saying? Is he breaking his own world building in order to deliver exposition to Pippin and thereby to the reader? And the answer is kind of yes, but also he's doing what J.R.R. Tolkien does, which is anchoring it in the 
real deep motivations of the scene. The conflict between the orcs here is not incidental. It is not a convenience to allow for A, the exposition, and B, the escape of the hobbits. That is not what we're doing here. This is not a trivial conflict between enemies who have no reason to be fighting each other and should be united. It goes much deeper than that. At one level deeper, it goes to the conflict between, <laughs> between the two towers, right? It goes to the conflict between Orthanc and Barad-dûr. It goes to the conflict between Saruman and Sauron. We know from Gandalf's account back at the Council of Elrond that Saruman is not entirely on board with this whole Sauron thing, that he has plots within plots, plans within plans, and he may not be able to actually make that happen, but that is at least his intent. So there is this conflict here that is represented by the orcs here, the orcs of Barad-dûr and the orcs of Isengard, the orcs of Orthanc, if you like. But we can go one level deeper than that even, past Saruman and Sauron to the nature of evil itself. Evil is destructive. Evil is selfish and grasping and cannot build. This notion that that evil cannot create because creation itself requires the light of Iluvatar, right? That, that the, the light of God passes through us, whether by us we mean the Valar or the Maiar or the elves or the men or the dwarves or the hobbits or whomever, right? The, the light of God passes through us and that is the creative spark. That is, that is what allows for creation. This is why Tolkien referred to even his own writing as sub-creation. It's not creation, only God can do that part, but it is sub-creation. It is creation in God's light and through God's light. That's, you know, the, the kind of theological basis that Tolkien subscribed to for, for all of his creativity and for the foundations of art, the value of art, the, the sanctity of art here. Evil creatures being cut off from the light of Iluvatar cannot, therefore, create. So they... They pervert and they, they twist, they draw forth from themselves and grasp from others. There's no growth here. They cannot build, obviously building itself, an act of creation. Evil cannot build. It can only take, it can only grasp, it can only claw, and evil will ultimately destroy itself. There may be a huge amount of damage in the meantime, but ultimately evil cannot endure. Evil cannot stand. That is you know, theme one of the Lord of the Rings, basically. And it's being pre uh, presented to us here in the, the conflict between these different Orcish tribes and therefore in their language. So yes, I mean, literally, yes. Tolkien is, is making the choice to have the orcs speak common so that we get the exposition, yes. But it is a well-justified and motivated choice, which does not make it cheap. The difference between strong storytelling and weak storytelling is not artifice. All storytelling is artifice. The difference is whether it is well-motivated, well-constructed, well well-founded, well-intentioned, or poorly motivated, poorly founded, poorly constructed, poorly intentioned. That's the difference between good stories and bad. It's not that this is contrived. All narrative is contrived. All stories are contrived. That is, they are literally, you know, put together. This is true of Tolkien as it is true of everyone else. Yeah. Um... Oh, interesting. Lynn says, if evil cannot build, how does it get its own language? Because language signifies the building of a community. Yes, no, this is, this is partly what I was referencing earlier, right? This idea that the black speech comes from Valorin, which is the language of the Valar. So this is the language that, that Melkor, that, that Morgoth spoke when he created the orcs in the first place. So this language is not spoken upon the surface of Middle-earth by anyone anymore, but it is still spoken by the orcs because they can't create. There is no new language for the orcs. It is a perversion of the language that they were 
they were given at the moment of their creation by Melkor, by, by Morgoth, by the Valar, right? Back, uh, by this individual Valar back at the beginning of time. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, evil also built Barador. No, says Malex. Yes, I mean, literally evil can build. Literally evil can, can, you know, put a stone on top of another stone and build a thing. But that thing will not endure. It's not, it's not a, a, um, it's not a positive act of creation, right? It is an act of, of, uh, a kind of, 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 investment of resources that, that bespeaks a, a lack of resources. I'm, I'm, try, I'm struggling to kind of think of a great metaphor here to, to describe this, but it is the, the building of, uh, we get three examples. Hey, just to talk some more about towers, right? We get three great examples here. We've got Minas Tirith, we've got the White Tower constructed by men that stands against the darkness. Then we've got Minas Morgul, as it is now known, constructed by man, but fell to the darkness. And then we've got Barador constructed by the darkness. That's kind of our, our spectrum of towers right now. And you can see the distinction between even uh, Minas Morgul and Barador. Barador is a, as I said, a grasping kind of, of it is literally created, but it is not, it is literally constructed, but it is not, um, it is not designed to stand. It will not stand on its own, right? It is held aloft by the power of Sauron, by the focus of Sauron, and it will fall. We'll talk about that later. Yes. Okay, let's keep going onward here. Um, oh, I wanted to show you this before we move on. This is the only piece of black speech poetry that we have. There is no other piece of black speech poetry recorded in Tolkien's Legendarium. This is the only thing that he wrote. Obviously we have orc poetry, orc songs, goblin songs, but we get nothing in the black speech save for this. Uh, shout out, I guess, if you uh, if you can recognize this in the Crowdcast chat. Ashnag, uh, this is going to be difficult, Ashnazg Durbatuluk, Ashnazg Gimbatul, Ashnazg Thrakatuluk, the writing on the ring. Yes. Gandalf says in the White Council, it's the ring inscription. Yes. Good. <laughs> One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness find them. That's the black speech. In effect, it's fantastic. There's a big clue here, even if you don't remember this or if you haven't read this elsewhere. There's a big clue, of course. It's that second recurring word. Nazg is the same root as Nazgul. It's, it's ring. Nazgul, ring wraith. Wraith of the ring, you know. And, and here, Nazg is used again to mean ring. Yes. Yes, as Skipa's pointing out. Excellent. Skipa just did that exact bit of translation. Fantastic. It's the ring. I like it very much. Ash Nazg Durbatuluk. That's, it's dark. And again, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, I guess, but Tolkien was so skilled in the creation of his language. His, his work with black speech, which is far less thorough than his work with the other constructed languages that he was responsible for. The black speech does kind of have, you know, a dictionary, but it's a very brief dictionary and we don't get the same kind of grammatical and syntactical rules for black speech that we get for, you know, Quenya or for Sindarin or whatever. Um, it's, it's much less developed than that, mostly because we spend almost no time with people who speak the black speech, but there we go. Um, even though it is less developed than the other languages, he manages to hit the, the, 
what would the word be? The opposite of euphony. Malphony, I suppose? He manages to hit the ugly sounding nature of black speech really rather perfectly. It's, it's, Tolkien had such a, an appreciation for and a sensitivity to the sound of language, the rhythm of language, the musicality of language, that he was always paying close attention to that, which is why his dialogue shines as beautifully as it does. It's why his poetry is as incredible as it is. But he can also pervert that. He can also turn that to darkness and ill intention, right? He can make the black speech just sound monstrous. We'll get a little more of that as we go. Good. Okay. So factions emerge in the uh, in the uh, ongoing conversation. Here we get Ugluk and Grishnak, right? And I'm just going to gloss this because this can be a, a little tricky. Ugluk is the leader of the Uruk-hai uh, scouts, the Uruk-hai orcs. So Ugluk is the Uruk-hai. He is representative of the orcs of Saruman. Grishnak is a captain from Barador. He has served in Barador personally. He has kind of been, I guess, literally under the shadow of Sauron and has now ventured west. So that's, that's where we are. Ugluk represents Saruman's orcs. Grishnak represents Sauron's orcs. And this is the uh, this is the slide that we get. I came across, said the evil voice. A winged Nazgul awaits us northward on the east bank. Maybe, maybe. Then you'll fly off with our prisoners and get all the pay and praise and lugboos and leave us to foot it best we can through the horse country. No, we must stick together. The lands are dangerous, full of foul rebels and brigands. Aye, we must stick together, growled Ugluk. I don't trust you, little swine. You've no guts outside your own sties. But for us, you'd all have run away. We are the fighting Urukai. We slew the great warrior. We took the prisoners. We are the servants of Saruman the Wise, the white hand, the hand that gives us man's flesh to eat. We come out of Isengard and led you here, and we shall lead you back by the way we choose. I am Ugluk. I have spoken. You've spoken more than enough, Ugluk, sneered the evil voice. I wonder how they would like it in Lugburs. They might think that Ugluk's shoulders need relieving of a swollen head. They might ask where his strange ideas come from. Did they come from Saruman, perhaps? Who does he think he is, setting up on his own with his filthy white badges? They might agree with me, with Grishnak, their trusted messenger, and I, Grishnak, say this. Saruman is a fool, and a dirty, treacherous fool, but the great eye is on him. Swine, is it? And how do you folk like being called swine by the muckrakers of a dirty little wizard? It's orc flesh they eat, I'll warrant. Many loud yells and orc speech answered them, and the ringing clash of weapons being drawn. Cautiously, Pippin rolled over, hoping to see what would happen. His guards had gone to join in the fray. In the twilight, he saw a large black orc, probably Ugluk, standing facing Grishnak, a short, crook-legged creature, very broad and with long arms that hung almost to the ground. Round them were many smaller goblins. Pippin supposed they were the ones from the north. They had drawn their knives and swords, but hesitated to attack Ugluk. Here we get our, our taxonomy of orc physicality, I suppose. Uh, small orcs from the Misty Mountains. Larger orcs, medium-sized orcs from Mordor. Big orcs from Isengard. That seems to be how that works out. Will says, surprisingly little military discipline from a race of creatures that are literally bred only for war. Not bred for war, though, specifically as much as they are bred for service. This is another of the problems of evil, right? You can't literally empower those beneath you. You can only drive them. You can only compel them. You can drive them forth with fear and with, with you know, the promise of, of reward, but you can't actually embody within them what? What differentiates the men of Rohan, the men of Gondor, the men of the North, the men of Numenor, the elves, the hobbits? What differentiates the races of good from the races of evil here? 
well, honor, a sense of goodness, their word, their bond. Here we're getting practicality. Here we're getting this, this internal conflict. Here we're getting suspicion and hatred and, and jealousy. Here we're getting the, the mean-spirited conflicts that naturally emerge among the followers of evil. We're not getting talk of oaths, right? We're not getting the sense that these orcs have taken a promise, or at least not a promise that compels them in the same way that Boromir's promise would, or Aragorn's promise would, or, or Eomer's promise would. Yeah. Um, intent. It all comes down to intent, says Heroes and Bards. Yes. Good. Good. Uh, yes. Rayla Lynn calls out a, uh, yeah, a, a little trouble here. The white hand, the hand that gives us man flesh to eat. What? Saruman gives them humans to eat? Yes. Yes. Uh, apparently, clearly, though the other orcs are suspicious and say, no, 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 it's orc flesh that they eat. Saruman's tricking them. It's not actually humans. It's the flesh of other orcs. How disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, Lynn says, imagine how many people Saruman would have to feed his orc army. I don't think that he feeds his orc army with human beings. I don't think that he that, that all that they eat is human flesh. I think a morsel of human flesh here and there would probably be enough to keep the orcs in line. Even the promise of human flesh, you know, humans tomorrow is a more powerful promise than humans today. Yeah. <clears throat> Good. Orcs have a problem with cannibalism? Uh, only in the sense of betrayal, right? And only, I'm sure, because... Uh, sorry, I didn't credit that. That was C-Star 2. Orcs have a problem with cannibalism? Um, only, I sense, in the sense that they are... Um, that, that Grishnak here is trying to, to split the support here. Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay, we must keep pushing on. How many more slides do I have? I have too many slides, guys. We're not going to get through them all this week. A shadow bent over Pippin. It was Ugluk. Sit up, said the orc. My lads are tired of lugging you about. We've got to climb down and you must use your legs. Be helpful now. No crying out, no trying to escape. We have ways of paying for tricks that you won't like, that they won't spoil your usefulness for the master. He cut the thongs around Pippin's legs and ankles, picked him up by the hair and stood him on his feet. Pippin fell down and Ugluk dragged him back by his hair again. Several orcs laughed. Ugluk thrust a flask between his teeth and poured some burning liquid down his throat. He felt... Excuse me, he felt a hot, fierce glow flow through him. The pain in his legs and ankles vanished. He could stand. Now for the other, said Ugluk. Pippin saw him go to Mary, who was lying close by, and kick him. Mary groaned. Seizing him roughly, Ugluk pulled him into a sitting position and tore the bandage off his head. Then he smeared the wound with some dark stuff out of a small wooden box. Mary cried out and struggled wildly. The orcs clapped and hooted. Can't take his medicine, they jeered. Don't know what's good for him. Aye, we shall have some fun later. But at the moment, Ugluk was not engaged in sport. He needed speed and had to humor unwilling followers. He was healing Mary in orc fashion, and his treatment worked swiftly. When they had forced a drink from his flask down the hobbit's throat, cut his leg bonds, and dragged him to his feet, Mary stood up, looking pale but grim and defiant and very much alive. The gash in his forehead gave him no more trouble, but he bore a brown scar to the end of his days. "'Hello, Pippin,' he said. "'So you've come on our little expedition, too. Where do we get bed and breakfast?' Now then, said Ugluk, none of that. Hold your tongues. No talk to one another. Any trouble will be reported at the other end, and he'll know how to pay you. You'll get bed and breakfast, all right, more than you can stomach. You'll get bed and breakfast, all right, more than you can stomach. Not up there in the great all-time threats, I have to say. Not really a top ten contender for greatest threat of all time, but... Nonetheless, it caps the scene rather beautifully. Here we're seeing the brutality of orcish culture and even orcish medicine, right? They are so crude and brutal that even the administering of medicine is an unlovely thing. This is 
antithetical to everything that we saw at Lothlorien, at Rivendell too, in particular, right? This is not the nurturing healing of Aragorn with, with Athelas and hot water. This is something much more effective, arguably, but also much more crude, much more barbaric. This is orc culture. And we're told that until the end of his days, Mary will sport that brown scar on his head from the gash that he received. I guess will sport that brown scar on his head, not from the gash that he received, but rather from the treatment of the gash that he received. And we also have this, um, the hot, fierce glow that flows through Pippin and Mary when they are given the, the orcish liquor as opposed to elven wine or the, the, you know, filter that Gandalf carries with him as they're moving through Moria. This is of a different sort. This is a crueler and more urgent sort of, of medicine, sort of magic here. But what's most impressive here is Mary. Mary stood up, looking pale but grim and defiant and very much alive. The gash in his forehead gave him no more trouble, but he bore a brown scar to the end of his days. Hello, Pippin, he said. So you've come on this little expedition too. Where do we get bed and breakfast? Mary has just awoken. Mary has just kind of been dragged back to consciousness here. And his first response is to be defiant. Not spitting and snarling and threatening the way that, say, you know, Boromir might or that Gimli almost certainly would, but he's defiant in the Hobbit fashion. He stands tall and is polite and courteous and inquires about bed and breakfast. This is Mary. Yes, Jenna says, Hi, my name is Mary and I'm either the strongest Hobbit alive or I use humor as a defensive mechanism. Um, we'll, we're going to see this again. Let me see how many... Um, you know what? Let's power through. We've got a few here that we can get through. Um, we're going to talk about Grishnak and the ring, and then we'll uh, wrap up with another discussion of, of what it is that makes hobbits so profoundly special. Pippin and Merry sat up. Their guards, Isengarders, had gone with Ugluk. But if the hobbits had any thought of escape, it was soon dashed. A long, hairy arm took each of them by the neck and drew them close together. Dimly, they were aware of Grishnok's great head and hideous face between them. His foul breath was on their cheeks. He began to paw them and feel them. Pippin shuddered as hard, cold fingers groped down his back. Where are my little ones? said Grishnok in a soft whisper. Enjoying your nice rest or not? A little awkwardly placed, perhaps. Swords and whips on one side, nasty spears on the other. Little people should not meddle in affairs that are too big for them. His fingers continued to grope. There was a light like a pale but hot fire behind his eyes. The thought came suddenly into Pippin's mind, as if caught direct from the urgent thought of his enemy. Krishnak knows about the ring. He's looking for it while Ugluk is busy. He probably wants it for himself. Cold fear was in Pippin's heart, yet at the same time he was wondering what use he could make of Krishnak's desire. I don't think you'll find it that way, he whispered. It isn't easy to find. Find it, said Krishnak. His fingers stopped crawling and gripped Pippin's shoulder. Find, want. What are you talking about, little one? For a moment, Pippin was silent. Then, suddenly, in the darkness, he made a noise in his throat. Gollum, Gollum, nothing, my precious, he added. The hobbits felt Grishnak's fingers twitch. Oh, oh, hissed the goblins softly. That's what he means, is it? Oh, oh, very, very dangerous, my little ones. Perhaps, said Mary, now aware and al uh, now alert and aware of Pippin's guess. Per perhaps, but not only for us. Still, you know your own business best. Do you want it or not? And what would you give it for us? Excuse me, what would you give for it? Do I want it? Do I want it? Said Grishnak, as if puzzled, but his arms were trembling. What would I give for it? What do you mean? We mean, said Pippin, choosing his words carefully, that it's no good groping in the dark. We could save you time and trouble, but you must untie our legs first, or we'll do nothing and say nothing. This is fascinating. 
because there are two things now that we know about Grishnak, and something new, I think, that we know about the ring. Grishnak is not a ring bearer, has not, as far as we know, ever touched the ring. He has not borne it. He has not been corrupted by its influence. And yet, he is as driven as, well, perhaps not as driven as Gollum, but very, very driven in his pursuit of the ring at this point. Which is astonishing, since the ring isn't even present. How does Grishnak know about the ring? Well, I think we get the clue of this from Pippin's wild stab in the dark, echoing Gollum. He makes the Gollum sound in his throat and then calls the ring his precious. And that is what tips off Grishnak. Oh ho, said the, hissed the goblin softly. That's what he means. He said, oh ho, very, very dangerous, my little ones. So he recognizes not just the concept of the ring, but the precious, and possibly even the Gollum sound too. How does Grishnak know about the ring? Well, it seems likely that Grishnak was serving in Barador when Gollum was there, that Grishnak, captain of the orcs of Barador, one of the orcish captains of Barador, was around when Gollum was being interrogated, we might euphemistically say. Tortured is probably a lot closer to the truth. That seems to be how he knows not just about this particular nickname for the ring, this particular term of endearment for the ring, but also about Gollum. Knowledge of the ring itself, well, how many people know about the ring? How many orcs know of the ring? I can't imagine that it's that many, right? Certainly, knowledge of the ring could be, could stand in for, could be a, a conduit for the influence of the ring. That is to say that, that, um, that Grishnach here has an awareness of the ring that makes his desire for the ring all the more acute. To the point, yeah, as Jenna says, can the ring cast this wide of an influence? Um, it would seem not, right? Otherwise, why isn't every man in the world corrupted? Why isn't every orc just thinking of the ring and nothing else? If the ring can cast this wide an influence, if, if the comfort of the ring or the, the presence of the ring, the corruption of the ring is so powerful, why hasn't everyone fallen to it? Are orcs simply that much more susceptible? Well, maybe, but it doesn't explain why Grishnak is the only one pursuing it. I guess it also clarifies for us that Grishnak knows that one of these hobbits is supposed to have the ring, right? So he doesn't just know that the ring exists, he knows that it's in the possession of a hobbit at Amonhen. But he clearly isn't feeling the presence of the ring because, minor spoilers, you guys, the ring is not here. This is not where the ring is. He's not under its direct influence, but he's also unaware of the fact that he's not under its direct influence. He's not trying to get the ring specifically in the way that, you know, we've seen the Nazgul be attracted to the presence of the ring. This is just a more rampant desire for the ring. He's not reacting to it. He's reacting to the idea of it, to the corruption that's already, that's, that has already afflicted him. Yes. An orc would not last long as a ring bearer, says Angela. No, because a, an orc would be corrupted in seconds, right? Yes. They also wouldn't have any power. They, they don't... Well, well, we'll have an opportunity to talk about that in, in time. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Good. Okay. Um, let me see here. Yeah, Will says, I think it might just be that Grishnak was told of the signs to look for when he's, uh, what to look for when he's searching for the ring bearer, assuming Grishnak is a captain of some sort. Yeah, I mean, it could be, I suppose, but that, <sighs> I suppose it is possible that in his desire for the ring, Grishnak is not actually under the influence of the ring at all right? It may be, it, to kind of draw the distinction here, it may be that he wants the ring, but he doesn't want the ring because the ring wants him, 
That would be the separation. Boromir wanted the ring because the ring wanted Boromir. Galadriel wanted the ring because the ring wanted Galadriel. The ring, I can't imagine, would be terribly interested in Grishnak. That would not be a powerful, he would not be a powerful ring bearer. So it is still possible, I suppose, that he wants the ring because he has heard of it, not because he is under its fell and malign influence. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good idea. Good. Okay, let me uh, continue here. Um, we're going to actually skip a slide because I really do have to, to end here. Uh, Grishnak leads the uh, leads the hobbits away and is killed, and the hobbits are freed. Uh, they hide beneath their elven cloaks. Then they get up after the battle is over and they begin walking. And this is the slide that I referred to earlier about uh, hobbitry and how hobbits cope with trauma. They turned and walked side by side, slowly along the line of the river. Behind them, the light grew in the east. As they walked, they compared notes, talking lightly in hobbit fashion of the things that had happened since their capture. No listener would have guessed from their words that they had suffered cruelly and been in dire peril, going without hope toward torment and death, or that even now, as they knew well, they had little chance of ever finding friend or safety again. "'You seem to have been doing well, Master Took,' said Mary. "'You will get almost a chapter in old Bilbo's book if I ever get a chance to report to him. Good work, especially guessing that hairy villain's little game and playing up to him. But I wonder if anyone will ever pick up your trail and find that brooch.' I should hate to lose mine, but I'm afraid yours is gone for good. I shall have to brush up to my toes if I'm to get level with you. Indeed, Cousin Brandybuck is going in... Uh, excuse me. Indeed, Cousin Brandybuck is going in front now. This is where he comes in. I don't suppose you have much notion where we are, but I spent my time in Rivendell rather better. We are walking west along the Entwash, the butt end of the Misty Mountains is in front, and Fangorn Forest. Even as he spoke, the dark edge of the forest loomed up straight before them. Night seemed to have taken refuge under its great trees, creeping away from the coming dawn. "'Lead on, Master Brandybuck,' said Pippin, "'or bleed back. "'We've been warned against Fangorn, "'but one, one so knowing will not have forgotten that.' "'I have not,' answered Mary, "'but the forest seems better to me all the same "'than turning back into the middle of a battle.'" The hobbits here... We, we've talked before about the ways in which Tolkien modulates his register, the ways in which in moments of great drama, moments of great import, moments of great significance, the tone of the entire book will, will be elevated. Suddenly we will be in these, these arcane and archaic heights of language. It will be magnificent. And we've talked too, that, that's Tolkien's skill as an author. We've talked too about Aragorn's skill with words and with names. Remember at Parth Gallon when he sends Frodo off, he calls him Frodo, son of Drogo. Go off, take your hour. Ring bearer, go off and take your hour. This is the, the kind of, of magnitude of, of the discussion that we're having. How do the hobbits protect themselves, find hope and solace, and even ultimately begin to heal from the terrible things that they have endured, captured by orcs, not knowing if Frodo and Sam are alive, not knowing if Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, if they are alive. They know nothing about what happened. They saw Boromir fall, and as far as they know, the entire fellowship was destroyed, save for these two. How do they restore themselves? Well, they restore themselves by turning to hobbitry. They, they restore themselves by turning to hobbitishness. They talk lightly in hobbit fashion of the things that had happened since their capture. No listener would have guessed from their words that they had suffered cruelly, been in dire peril, going without hope toward torment and death, or that even now as they knew well they had little chance of finding friend or safety again. You seem to have been doing well, Master Took. You will get almost a chapter in old Bilbo's book if I get a chance to report to him. Good work, especially guessing that hairy villain's little game and playing up to him, but I wonder if anyone will ever pick up your trail and find that brooch. I should hate to lose mine, but I'm afraid yours is gone for good. I shall have to brush 
brush up my toes if I'm to get level with you. Indeed, Cousin Brandybuck is going in front now. This is where he comes in. I don't suppose you'd have much notion where we are, but I spent my time in Rivendell rather better. We're walking west along the Antwash. The butt end of the Misty Mountains is in front, and Fangorn Forest. This jocular, teasing, light-hearted, mundane civility, this is what defines hobbits. We've seen this from the very beginning of the book. This is the way that Merry and Pippin talk to each other. This is the way that Merry and Pippin and Frodo talk to each other. Nobody talks this way to Sam because Sam is not of our social class. It would be it would be wildly impolite to talk this way to Sam, but we can talk this way among ourselves. We gentle hobbits can tease each other this way. I shall have to brush up my toes if I'm to get level with you. Indeed, Cousin Brandybuck is going in front now. This is where he comes in. Okay, I'm taking the lead. This is my moment to shine. All right, good work, Pippin. You've got a whole chapter in Bilbo's book if we ever get a chance to talk to him about this adventure. But now, now's my time. Step back. Check this out. I studied maps in Rivendell. I know where we are. I mean, I know where we are to the limits of the maps in Rivendell. This is what I think separates hobbits. They don't do as Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas did, which is kind of preserve and even even raise still further that heightened tone. You know, as we're, as we're dashing grimly across the fields of Rohan, as we're pausing only when we must, and we're, we're squinting, and, and say, with, with grim foreshadowing, squinting into the middle distance and saying, but the orcs are long gone and they've taken the hobbits with them. No, no, that's not how the hobbits deal with it. They bring it all back to civility. There isn't here a mention of, of a singing kettle and bacon back home, but there may as well be. This is the, the kind of rhythm and pattern that we're, we're using here. Yeah, good. Will asks, do hobbits embody the British stiff upper lip quality? Um, gosh, um, in some sense, yes, I would say. I think that there is a perspective, particularly now, particularly in recent years, and particularly on this side of the Atlantic, that the notion of the stiff upper lip was somehow disingenuous, that it was somehow inauthentic, right? That that British soldiers in particular would put on a mask of, of civility and confidence and certainty and would not give in to, you know, the, give in to outright emotional ruination caused by the things that they had seen, right? That, that stiff upper lip is synonymous with reserve in the idea that they are are inauthentic and inexpressive, right? That I don't think is the only perspective that you can have on the stiff upper lip. The stiff upper lip as an older tradition is simply fortitude, is simply, I mean, there, there are elements of faith, there are elements of hope, there are elements of community, there are definitely elements of civility contained within the notion of the stiff upper lip. The stiff upper lip is not about being inexpressive, it is about a confidence that things will turn out right will turn out better and until they do we shall endure we are strong and capable and not hardened by that strength or capability or hardened into cruelty by our by our adverse circumstances no we are strong we are capable we are we are doughty and and capable of great fortitude we will endure this because things will get better because this too shall pass that i think is the older kind of perspective on the stiff upper lip. And I think that, again, Tolkien, not thinking about the 20th century a great deal when writing The Lord of the Rings, thinking about, you know, the 14th, 13th, 12th, 11th centuries while writing The Lord of the Rings. I think that is a quality of mythic Englishness which he would respond to. 
that of course crashes into and, and is perhaps resonant with his own personal experience of the First World War and his son's experience of the Second World War, right? What he had personally experienced of war, and, and not just of war, not just the fighting of the war, but the whole kind of the whole experience of the war in the broadest possible sense, the hardship of the war, the deprivation of the war, the, the fear and the doubt and the isolation and the loneliness of the war, all of these kind of pre-war, mid-war, post-war experiences that, that kind of envelop both the First and Second World Wars. I think that there is obviously a connection here between these two things, but when we're, when we're referencing the, the, the classic English stiff upper lip, I would say yes, but I would also kind of footnote that, I would annotate that and say, but not in the not in the kind of grimly inauthentic way that that phrase is occasionally used or often used in the modern world, right? I think that Tolkien would be leaning on a much more a much more positive and and affectionate and respectful and 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 admiring tone than that. I think we are supposed to see the good in Marion Pippin here, right? That we're supposed to see the good in this little this little theater that we're getting. You seem to have been doing well, Master Took, says Mary. Why does he call him Master Took? Why doesn't he call him, you know, Peregrine, son of Paladin? Why doesn't he, you know, lean into Aragorn's mode of delivery, his mode of address? Because that's not what we're doing. That's not what hobbits do. Hobbits don't go big. Hobbits go small. That's where they find their safety. That's where they find their courage. That's where they find their hope. This entire conversation. You lost your brooch. That's too bad. I hope someone finds it. Uh, I don't really want to give up my brooch, though, because my brooch is still awesome and I still have it, so that's good. Um, I, we're, we're miles away from any friends and, in fact, may have no friends left in the world. Our entire company may have been destroyed, but, hey, you know, remember when back when you were in Rivendell and you were drinking beer and sleeping all day? I was looking at maps. That's about as hobbity as you can get, and that is what defines them. That is what gets them through this. Yes. Good. Good. And I love that Mary had the sense to look at maps in Rivendell, says Heroes and Bards. Yeah, Mary and, uh, and Frodo too. Pippin is apparently the only one who didn't. Yes. Good. All right. That, uh, oh, in fact, we've got one more slide. Let me just read you this slide and we'll move on as we, as we get into the, um, as we get into the, uh, the end of the chapter here. Far over the great river and the brown lands, leagues upon grey leagues away, the dawn came red as flame. Loud rang the hunting horns to greet it. The riders of Rohan sprang suddenly to life. Horn answered horn again. Merry and Pippin heard, clear in the cold air, the neighing of war horses and the sudden singing of many men. The sun's limb was lifted, an arc of fire above the margin of the world. Then with a great cry the riders charged from the east. The red light gleamed on mail and spear. The orcs yelled and shot all the arrows that remained to them. The hobbits saw several horsemen fall, but their line held, held on up the hill and over it and wheeled round and charged again. Most of the raiders that were left alive then broke and fled, this way and that, pursued one by one to the death. But one band, holding back in a black wedge, drove forward resolutely in the direction of the forest. Straight up the slope they charged toward the watchers. Now they were drawing near, and it seemed certain they would escape. They had already hewn down three riders that barred their way. We have watched too long, said Mary. There's Ugluk. I don't want to meet him again. The hobbits turned and fled deep into the shadows of the wood. So it was that they did not see the last stand, when Ugluk was overtaken and brought to bay at the very edge of Fangorn. There he was slain at last by Eomer, the third marshal of the Mark, who dismounted and fought him sword to sword, and over the wide fields the keen-eyed riders hunted down the few orcs that had escaped and still had strength to fly. Then, when they had laid their fallen comrades in a mound and had sung their praises, the riders made a great fire and scattered the ashes of their enemies. So ended the raid, and no news of it came ever back to Mordor or to Isengard. But the smoke of the burning rose high to heaven and was seen by many watchful eyes. Watchful eyes. 
Who is watching for ominous smoke on the fringes of Fangorn Forest? More on that in the pages to come. Um, yes, yes, good. Um, as Katie says, a red sun rises, blood has been spilled this night. Far over the great land, the great river, excuse me, and the brown lands, leagues upon gray leagues away, the dawn came, red as flame, loud rang the hunting horns to greet it. The riders of Rohan sprang suddenly to life, horn answered horn again. This is epic. This is mythic. But again, we're held in Merry and Pippin's POV, or, or rather, we're moving in and out of Merry and Pippin's POV. Merry and Pippin heard, clear in the cold air, the neighing of war horses, the sudden singing of many men, right? That's what Merry and Pippin hear. The neighing of war horses, the sudden singing of many men, as they're tucked away on the fringes of the forest. Then we switch back out to the field. We get the wide shot of the riders of Rohan coming into battle. The sun's limb was lifted, an arc of fire above the margin of the world. That is extraordinarily high language. That is extraordinarily elevated language. The sun's limb, the limb here, just the, yeah, the, the, the arc of the, the visible arc of the sun, the, the, the outermost portion of the sun. The sun's limb was lifted, an arc of fire above the margin of the world. Then with a great cry, the riders charged from the east. The red light gleamed on mail and spear. It's enormously powerful. We're, we're, we're conflating here the sun with the riders. We're, we're getting the, the, the coming of a force of fire into the West, which ordinarily would be a bad thing. But here we're using light and, and, and vibrancy, and we're opposing it with always the black of, of Mordor, the black of Isengard, right? Where the, this black wedge drove forward resolutely in the direction of the forest. Yeah, we're, we're opposing the light and the darkness here, and we're doing at this this extraordinary level. And then we turn again. We've watched too long, said Mary. There's Ugluk. I don't want to meet him again. I don't want to meet him again. Like, I don't want to, I'd rather not have the pleasure of Ugluk's company. In fact, thank you, says Mary. So they, the hobbits turned and fled deep into the shadows of the, of, of the wood. And look here too, how we, we turn our language. The hobbits turned and fled deep into the shadows of the wood. Then at the end of the following paragraph, and over the wide fields, the keen-eyed riders hunted down the few orcs that had escaped and still had the strength to fly. Fly, to flee, to fled. These, this is the same word that is being used in a very different context here, right? We're using the, the commonplace, the prosaic fled for Merry and Pippin because they are prosaically and commonplacedly fleeing into the forest. But when we're talking about over the wide fields, the keen-eyed riders with a capital R hunted down the few are, there we're using fly. There we're using the more epic, mythic version of the word. So throughout this sequence, we're modulating back and forth between the Hobbit experience and the widescreen Technicolor battle experience. And this is the first time that we're doing this in the Two Towers. It will not be the last. We have a lot more to look forward to. Yeah. I absolutely have to stop, though, I'm afraid. I absolutely have to wrap up. It is very, uh, very late here. Um, let me see if I can take a quick question. Oh, actually, let me show you the slide. I can't believe we made it through all of that. Good work, you guys. Book three, chapter four, Treebeard, next week, 10 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, November the 2nd, 2017. That is going to be our next session, just chapter four, and we'll probably circle back and talk a little more about uh, chapter three here too. Let me see if I can fit in one quick question before I wrap up. Uh, this question from Angela Lurie, the wonderful Angela Lurie says, Aragorn said that Sauron doesn't want his name spoken or that he doesn't want it used. Why doesn't Sauron want his name used? Is he still staying or working in the shadows or is it the power of speaking names or something else? Um, I don't think it's the power of speaking names. The power of speaking names well, there is a power associated with speaking true names and, and giving true names in the context of the Lord of the Rings, but it isn't 
Earthsea, right? This isn't, this isn't Ursula K. Le Guin. This isn't by knowing your true name, I have power over you and can compel you. It's not that kind of thing. The reason that Sauron, I think, doesn't want his name spoken is that he doesn't like his name. Sauron is a name that is given to him by the elves. It means the abhorred. It means, you know, he who is abhorred. It's not a good name. His original name is, uh, is uh, Myron, back when he was a, a Maya. He was of the Maiar before he fell under the fell influence of, of Morgoth. He was known as uh, as as Myron, and Sauron was given him to him, uh, given to him after the fact, after his great betrayal. So I think that is why he doesn't want to be called Sauron. But there may be other reasons too. Um, that I think is going to do it. Yes. Okay. Everyone's going. Everyone's going to eat. It's all going. Yes. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your attention. Save those, uh, save those questions. We'll hopefully get to them next week. Next week's a slightly shorter chapter, but we will have to talk about Treebeard. Treebeard and Beard Tree next week here on There and Back Again. Thank you for your company. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care. Bye.